If you have your Bibles, or a phone, or an iPad, uh, I would actually ask you to, to turn to Psalm 18. Uh, generally, when I talk in the summer, I kind of give you a travel log of what I've been doing over the summer, and, and uh, usually it's at the end of August, so I, so, but, I, but I, I was in the Middle East again in June. Um, some of you will know that I'm, the, I'm on the board of a, of a seminary in Beirut and a research institute called the Middle East uh, uh, Research Institute. And it's basically about uh, Muslim-Christian dialogue. The seminary is, uh, the president is a Tyndale grad, Eli Haddad. And there's actually about three or four other Tyndale grads that are are part of, uh, they were Lebanese Canadians who had left Lebanon and never wanted to go back. And uh, they studied here, well, in the modular program at the seminary. Uh, They were all very successful in business and God called them back to Lebanon. And uh, it's quite a story. One of the the things, uh, since this is mostly, it is mostly staff, uh, our colleague, we don't, I get the chance to see things you don't get to see. And uh, about the reach of this place and the influence and, and those kind of things. And if you sat there at the graduation, there was a graduation. Uh, Beirut is one of the few places where uh, someone who was a former Muslim who now is a follower of Jesus Christ can study for pastoral ministry legally. Uh, one of the few places in the Middle East. And so if you were to sit there and see about 14 countries represented in the 25 people who graduated, uh, you would just, you'd be in awe of their stories, of, uh, of the kind of influence that these Tyndale students have had in shaping an institution it's a small place, but it has uh, a big, big influence, and it, it, you'd be proud to know, and, and, and you make that possible, and I always think it's such a shame that you don't hear enough about what you've done to create a place and, a, and to create an atmosphere, and for some of these people, probably some of you had to deal with some of their conflicts around finances and all of those kinds of things. But then when you see them graduate and go off, um, it's remarkable. And uh, so I want to say thank you for all that you do. Uh, Every year in June, they have a Middle East conference. It's usually focused on uh, one year it was on spirituality and it was a Muslim-Christian dialogue around that. This year, they decided to focus it on uh, what does it mean to live as the church, um, in, in, now listen to their title, sorry about this, but Living as the Church in Disorienting Times. They had taken a book that I, a title of a book that I had written with Peter Dickens, and they, were, they wanted to say, well, what, how do we as, as, as Arab Christians, how do we live in a time when North American Christians ultimately forget that we're even here? Uh, they forget that we actually exist and, and make comments about 
the Middle East that have impact on them as, as Christian, as Arab Christians. And I was asked to, to bring the devotionals each morning, uh, which was no mean feat because what do I have to say to a group of, minor, uh, of minority Christians in a, uh, in a majority Muslim world? So I did what I would normally do. I went to the Psalms. Because I think the Psalms, uh, they speak across experience in, in such a real way. And one of the Psalms that I, I dealt with, the first one, the first day, was Psalm 18. Now, I'm well aware that I've talked about this in chapel at least twice before, but there is a reason why I came back to this for today. Because for me, Psalm 18, and especially those, those first 19 verses, are kind of what I would call uh, um, a kind of grounding psalm. Now, I don't, I've never ever read a commentary uh, on psalm on the Psalms ever talk about grounding Psalms. But it's, for me, it might be an interesting thing to explore. For me, Psalm 18 is, is a grounding Psalm and it's a Psalm that I return to over and over and over again. Uh, and I meditate on it at least once a year, uh, just before the, BED the new cohort of B.Ed. students come in in August which is just next week, by the way. There'll be a whole new cohort of B.Ed. students here. And just around when we know that the September uh, influx is about to come. Some call this, some commentators call this a psalm of thanksgiving. I call it a psalm of grounding, because I think it's much more. Matter of fact, there's one commentator who makes the comment. He says that this psalm is written to keep hope alive in the Jewish communities that are experiencing oppression. Isn't that interesting? I mean, this, this is a psalm uh, that, that, that they would read in particular times where they needed hope. And remember, the theme was living as Christians in, a, in disorienting times. And there's a wonderful flow to this that, that um, we're not going to be able to do it today, but if you read through this whole psalm, you'd get this amazing flow. There's kind of this intimate, you know, the first three verses, intimate comments about God, and then there's what I call the executive brief about what happened, and then there's kind of a longer version of him describing what happens after verse 19. He kind of unpacks. <coughs> but each of them are, are, are kind of increasingly a moving deeper in understanding. <clears throat> Verse 1 to 19 is like what I call a breathless executive brief about what had happened to him. And it starts with this intimate of kind of first three verses, and this is the paraphrase I have. Wow. I love God. Those first three verses. Wow, He's, he saved me. Then it's like, if you, if you get the flow, it's like he kind of leans into the psalm. He kind of leans into his writing because he wants to tell you the story that he's so excited about. 
And when you look at the next verses, um, it's kind of like, let me tell you the story. Life was a mess. There was chaos everywhere. It was overwhelming. I couldn't escape. I prayed to God. Uh, I mean, I, I needed God to do something in the midst of this. Now, are any of the Old Testament profs here today? Okay, good. If you read the commentators on this, on the Old Testament, I actually think they, they really miss something here. I've said this to them, so don't worry. Like, I am struck that most of the commentators, when you read the, about this passage, they think that distress is actually the opposite of faith. In other words, when I'm in distress, they feel like somehow that's the opposite of faith. And I think commentators need to get out more. I think the Old Testament commentators are missing this full, rich language, this faith language that only makes sense when you feel the intimacy of God and you are in distress and yet you're still experiencing God and you need God to intervene. In other words, I feel all of these things around me I mean, Beekner talks about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says, when, when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says, actually, Jesus is saying, my God, my God, where in my hell, my hell that I'm experiencing right now are you? That's faith with an intimate God. And I think distress is a raw emotion and it finds itself alive in a faithful knowing of God. It's there when you don't feel it. It's knowing God hears even from the distance that you might be expressing at a particular time. I was fascinated by how many Arab Christians leaned into this message. Annie Lamont says there's two kinds of prayers. You've probably heard this. Help me, help me. And then thank you, thank you. Carla has added one other one. It's sorry, sorry. <laughs> so help me, help me. Thank you, thank you. This is basically that kind of song. song. Help me, help me. Thank you, thank you. And I love the colorful language. You probably saw it on the screen. You know, the, the smoke coming from the nostrils. There's all this, this, this kind of dr drama of how God intervened. You know, uh, this is, he's trying poetically to, to get across how big this intervention was. Uh, my grandfather died when I was in grade two. Uh, he was a preacher in, uh, and in a church in World War II in Halifax. And so uh, it was a church that you had to line up to get into on a Sunday night because he was quite a show, I gather. He was one of those great orators, show, you know, show preachers of the time, a Helen Brimstone kind of guy, uh, amazing scholar. I still have his... Greek New Testament that he did his devotions in. He was five foot two. He had size five feet. 
Can you imagine? He had a white shock of hair. I, I see that in the pictures. But I have one, remember he died in grade two, so I don't have many memories of him except one. I was up in the field near our house, and we were near an army barracks in Calgary. And uh, there was a bit of a kind of conflict that took place between the kids from the army barracks and the kids in the neighborhood. And, um, and my little friend and I had gone into no man's land where we weren't allowed by those guys. And a group of teenagers had come and were teasing us and prodding us with sticks. Right? And I'm scared. Like, I can't remember how old I was. I might maybe five. There was a big hill uh, that we had come over. At least it was big when I was that young. <laughs> it looked big anyway. I, I noticed that a lot of things look a lot smaller now. Uh, but I was standing down there, and these guys were prodding us. I was scared. I was crying. And out of nowhere, comes this little, small, five foot two, size five feet, Baptist minister, probably at that point in his 60s, who in that, you know, the orator days, they could, they, they could produce sound in their voices. They didn't need microphones. And all I remember of my grandfather is this. You boys, you leave my grandson alone. Isn't that interesting? That, every time I read this, the, the, the smoke came out of his nostrils, <laughs> the flames came out of it. This five foot two, that was exactly the way it happened. Smoke came out of his nostrils. They were scared. He's standing at the top of the hill so they don't know he's five foot two. And they ran. That's what the psalmist is describing. In verse 16 to 19, he, said, he even tells you why God was so mad. Because God is for him. I mean, we sing that. We, we talk about it. But do we ever really ground ourselves in it? God brings support rather than disaster. He brings a spacious place rather than distress. Instead of disapproval, in verse 19, he delighted in me. A spacious place where he delights in me. This is what I learned in Lebanon. To, to Middle Eastern Arab Christians, this was a new idea. They had never thought of that. And yet, so much of our hunger, isn't it interesting? So much of our hunger is a hunger for blessing. I used to apologize to my father all the time for the problems I gave him when I was growing up. But we used to be able to get him to cry 
at the drop of our hat. It's kind of a joke in our family. My father died two years ago, but up to that point, all you had to say is, boy, John, what do you think of your sons? There's two of us. We're very different. But he'd say, he would start to cry, and he'd say, I'm so proud of them. I've always known I'm so proud of them. And he would just bawl. Um, when I finally learned that, like I actually internalized that, is when I really began to realize that I wanted to live up to that. That's what the blessing of God is about. It's to know that you're so delighted in that you, you want to live up to that delight. You, it's not out of guilt, it's, it's out of a, a smiling over. So much of our aching is the ache to be blessed. I can't tell you how many people I have talked with over the years in pastoral ministry, when I was in pastoral ministry, of sitting in an office of people who have gone through dreadful experiences in their lives and just ache to have somebody say that they delight in them, that they're, you know, that to be blessed by someone. So much of the sadness for some of us comes from the fact that nobody's ever taken delight and pleasure in us in any kind of non-exploitive way. I have a friend who, who did her doctoral dissertation on the images of God as father to women who were abused by their father. That how could they recapture that idea of God as father in the midst of when they own, all they ever knew was being exploited? When you last felt that you are someone in whom others and God takes pleasure and delight. When is the last time that you felt that? This is why I come back to this psalm over and over. And this is why I think this psalm is a grounding psalm. It's not just a psalm of thanksgiving and it's not just a psalm of hope. It is, it is actually the very place from which faith emerges. Jesus' baptism is a great example. God speaks out. This is my beloved child, and in him I take delight. There's a lot more that could be said on this psalm. But I want to quickly just point out one other place, and there are numerous other places, where this key grounding framework is laid out. And it's Zephaniah, if you've got your phones. I won't have to give you the page number. It's Zephaniah chapter 3. And it's verse 17. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. And he will rejoice over you with singing. The prophet is speaking for God about the corruption. If you look at the, the context, the corruption is all around. The descriptions make you realize, you know, whatever you're feeling about the times we're in now, 
I mean, obedience is to no one. Corruption is all around, he says. Officials are roaring lions. You can't, they don't trust in the Lord. The rulers are like evening wolves. Isn't that interesting? That's a great image. They're hungry. Who leave nothing for the morning, it says. It's a great line. The unrighteous know no shame. Sound familiar? Sound like the 21st century? He also describes it as a time in which people are eager to act corruptly. And then he says, the Lord your God, then he begins to describe what he will do, and then he comes to this verse, and he says, the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. This is, this is a grounding song. He is with you. He is mighty to save. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. We were with our grandchildren this last, uh, in June as well. I, kept, I got back from, <laughs> I got back from, from Beirut, and the next day we flew to, to uh, PEI, because our granddaughter is an Alberta champion Highland dancer, and she was representing Alberta in uh, the national championship. So we had to be there. And so we were there, and uh, there's a little tradition that, that, um, that our daughter has started in, uh, in the family, and it, and it emerges out of something that she experienced in our church in Edmonton, where uh, I sang a blessing over every infant uh, at the infant dedication. And so we would, I would sing this blessing, and, and that was kind of the part of the, the whole liturgy of the child dedication. And so Stacy has picked this up, and she sings a blessing over, over our four grandchildren uh, every night. And so when we're there, uh, we get to do it. And I was thinking of this, this God who quiets you with his love and rejoices over you with singing. And the song is a very simple blessing. It says, it's like this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and give you peace and give you peace, and give you peace forever. The Lord be gracious to you. The Lord shine his face toward you, and give you peace, and give you peace and give you peace forever. So we sing over them every night. God sings over you. He quiets you with his love and he rejoices with you 
with his singing. God be with you in the coming days. Amen.